but but to continue on, so then there we have this thing for the OMB. That's the Office of Management and Budget, or uh, oh, isn't that right? Office of Management and Budget. And budget OMB. Yeah. Um, so they're going to to address uh, uh, inequities in I think home uh, estimates, home prices. So. Uh, some lenders are using computer-generated valuations. This is from an article at Marketplace.org, by the way. Uh, so some lenders are using, using computer-generated valuations instead of human appraisers to try and mitigate bias. But Michael Neal at the Urban Institute said computers also aired more in black neighborhoods. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, discrimination that might be just in the appraisal process more generally is somehow getting built into these models. The Biden administration says it will use fair housing laws, regulatory action, and the development of standards to address inequity in home appraisals. So they're <laughs> to break that down for you guys, they're saying, look, we have these algorithms that assess the value of a home. You know, call me crazy. I don't know anything about these algorithms. I don't know anything about real estate. I don't know anything about any of those things. But my guess is, is that part of the, the assessment of the value of a home is maybe, I don't know, uh, crime, crime rates in the neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. it, it might be the value of the homes around it. Um, it might be uh, how close are they to a, a law enforcement? What's the response time of law enforcement? I know at least where I'm from, College China grew up, and if you lived adjacent to a police officer's house, your your home insurance was cheaper um, just because you were close to law enforcement. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, so I don't know anything about those things, but they're saying, uh, look, the Biden administration wants to assess and, and and take action on, you know, maybe even using regulations, laws, force, coercion is another way to take a shot, guys, uh, to think about that. But um, they're going to do that to assess, you know, these this nasty racial bias that's put forth in uh, home appraisals and uh, minority areas. My guess is that if you, by the way, if you were a white person trying to sell your home in a predominantly minority area, uh, your home is still going to be valued the same. You know, uh, again, mm -hmm. just throwing it out there. I'm, I, if someone wants to prove me wrong, go for it. Like wondering so here's another thing from White House. Well, go real, ahead, go ahead. quick on this, I'm just trying to think this through. I mean, are they trying to increase the value of these houses? Is that really what they're trying? My to guess do? is they have to to get rid of certain criteria, or in, yeah. oh, I think it's increase. But so but they're going to get say, rid of anything that would drive the value down, and yeah. thus supposedly increase. But what's the what worth? gentrifying? Right? But who's going to buy that shit? By the way, yeah, but but yeah, right. But gentrifying isn't that like a big deal? It's like you you increase the cost of an area that pushes out the the more poor population. Is that right? That's that's. But 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 uh, yes, I mean, that is what gentrification doing, is. Yes, but yeah. they're doing that in effect arbitrarily through government. They're just boosting yeah. their prices. Like, who do you think is going to buy the houses? Typically, yeah. people who are at the same economic status. Now, what do they got to do? Supplement um, their ability to pay for a home. Like this, all this, all the answer to the the the, the new problem that they're going to create by this is more government, right? More government yeah. assistance, more government um, answer. Yeah, so it's it's completely backwards, especially if they rail against something like gentrification. They're literally doing gentrification via government law. I mean, that's it's crazy to me. Well, how, how are they, you they saying yeah. that they might be advocating for things that they claim to be opposing? Like yeah. anti-racism might actually be racist. Hold on, hold on now. Yeah, hold slow on. down. Come on, we're not getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Get out yeah. of here. Um, so here, here's another thing from from the White House. Uh, you know, briefing room statements. Uh, here's another thing. Uh, President Biden is charged is charging Secretary. So this is White House of President Biden is charging Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Marsha Fudge. Sorry, it's a funny name. With uh, <laughs> with leading a first of its kind interagency initiative to address inequity in home appraisals, 
the effort will seek to utilize quickly the many levers at the, like you said, federal government get involved uh, at the federal government's disposal, including potential enforcement under the fair housing laws. By the way, what do you, what do you mean potential enforcement? If they were already violating violating the law, then it would already be enforced. I, I, I this is kind of foreshadowing some stuff we'll get into later about the way laws are are executed. Um, regulatory action and development of standards and guidance in close partnership with industry and state and local governments to root out. So think about that root out racism, right? This is where you go searching for this boogeyman to just find shit. This root out is a is a a term. I think Lindsay's talked about this. Uh, at length where it's like when they say root out it means we know it's got to be there we got to find it you know this is going ghost hunting here uh root out discrimination in the appraisal and home buying process these are the kinds of policies and practices that keep black families capital b in greenwood and across the nation from building generational wealth through home ownership i believe this is from the speech that joe biden again our benevolent and very cognitively capable leader uh gave at tulsa on um June or teen, teen June, June, June 10th. I'm just picturing, uh, it is. I'm just picturing President Biden trying to say Mar Marsha Fudge <laughs> in a live press conference thoughts. with that, like the Marsha Fudge. What is this? What, huh? What? Yeah, you ain't black. I uh, wait, no, I don't know. You ain't fudge if you don't vote for me. Um, so he, here's pop. another thing. Corn pop. He's a bad dude. So, uh, so this is again. We're we're going through this stuff, and we're joking about the fact that we, our president, actually our president. But the point is, is that it, this is at our federal government, and there's and, and also at state levels. We talked about California. Get into one from uh, Vermont, other states, uh, where they are implementing institutional discrimination to force equity. So this is not equality. This is equity, and those are fundamentally incompatible ideas. Um, and so here's another one getting into COVID. So the VA, minority veterans to receive priority for coronavirus vaccines. That's in the VA, right? Here's from Vermont. The governor of Vermont tweeted this out um, in April. If you or anyone in your household identifies as black, which Rachel told us all much, uh, <laughs> indigenous or a person of color, BIPOC, including anyone with uh, Abenaki or other First Nations heritage, all household members who are 16 years or older can sign up to get the vaccine. Get yours at, and he, he shares a link. The reason why that's important is because I think at that time in Vermont, in order to get the vaccine, you had to be either like 55 or 60 or older. But it was, oh, if you're black or identify as black there, Rachel, uh, you can get the vaccine if you're 16. If you're 16, which – so let's ignore the racial part of it. That's against the science of – you know, what, what were the, the actual fatality rates of people who are in that age bracket, regardless of what their skin color was. But either way, it's saying like, look, if you're a white person who has every single comorbidity in the book and you're 45, you can't get the vaccine, but a black person or whatever non-white thing that is, um, well, he didn't put Asian in there, by the way, which is interesting. Um, and a whole nother uh, can of worms, but if you're black or indigenous or brown or whatever, and you're 16 and totally healthy, and you have a statistical zero percent chance of dying of this thing, you can get the vaccine. Um, this is this is equity in practice, and also how you breed resentment. By the way, in, in my personal opinion, um, and then just the last two here, again, equity versus equality. So here's the thing from Washington Post about how Oakland will give some families of color, which, by the way, talking about changing terms. I bet if you went around talking about they're giving colored people money, you know, now you're a racist. 
Uh, speaking of getting deplatformed on YouTube, but if you say yes. giving families of color, you know, then now that's that's uh, the the very compassionate and correct term to use. Um, uh, it's again just rebranding their racist bullshit. Uh, Oakland will give some families of color five hundred dollars a month, one of the biggest tests yet for guaranteed income. And so what Oakland is going to do? So there's this um, area called East Bay. Um, that they're going to – so launching this spring and summer, the city's program will distribute $500 monthly uh, to a group of randomly selected families for at least a year and a half. So it's $9,000 total in the minimum. To qualify, families must have at least one child and make less than 50% of the area median, about $59,000 annually for family of three. So to pause there, you have to be making about $30,000 a year in order to qualify for this, which will bump you up. And it'll, you'll get another, I guess it'd be $6,000 in a year. And that's, I didn't see anywhere in this article or anywhere else that qualifying for this makes you ineligible for any other set of government programs. And this gets into stuff where I've seen controversial people like Stefan Molyneux or whatever talking about, like, there is this cliff where if you're receiving these government benefits, let's say I'm making $21,000 a year annually, but I'm getting... $25,000 a year in government benefits, right? So these are numbers are wrong, but wrong in the right direction. Um, I'm effectively getting $46,000 a year annually. Hmm. And if I was to, to get a raise, if my employer was to give me a raise, even by $10,000 a year, which you would think would be great, but it would make me ineligible for all of those other benefits, I would have to turn it down. I would have to stay in this lower income bracket in order to continue to get the, that additional you know, effective $25,000 hmm. a year in benefits. And so it's like a person has to over double their income in, in, or at least accept something that would over double their income in order to, to get out of this, what is effectively just um, total dependence on the government for all these things. Uh, but either way, so they're going to give this to uh, 600 people. So there are huge gaps between people of color and our white residents, Oakland Mayor Libby Sheff. Uh, I love how they put the D in parentheses. Like we had no idea that was a Democrat. I'm glad you let me know. Oh. Um, I, was, I was worried it might be like a libertarian or a Republican. I told the Washington Post, with the limited resources of this pilot, we'd like to understand uh, better how we can understand that – this is a dumbass sentence – understand these disparities as well as address overall poverty. So the limited resources of this program, by the way, we did the math. It's $5.4 million of taxpayer money that's going to be used um, to understand disparities by giving people you know, extra money just for being not white. Um, and again, I, I think that it – it, it again doesn't apply to Asian people, I don't believe. Um, so, either way, this is this is that e equity and practice here uh, that that we're talking about, and the, and this is already happening. So, that was a, a big long aside from this book that was published in 1944. But the point is, is for you to understand. Okay, look, despite this being written, you know almost 80 years ago, what he's talking about, forced discrimination, treating people differently on purpose, deliberately, and how that is incompatible with equality and the rule of law and a functional society. Like those are the things he's saying that this is where planning leads and what is required of it. We're in it right now. This is planning. All of that crazy shit I just read that it's easy to make jokes about, um, that is what's going on right now. And it has the same end point. It has the same destination, which is societal unrest, requirements of more force, more force, more force, more coercion, more force by the government um, in order to enact these crazy policies. And then we all end up in uh, serfdom and servitude. Uh, mm -hmm. So 
anyone wondering the contemporary relevance of this, there you go. And I'll try to remember to put all those links in, in the video description. I suck ass at it. I always say it whenever I say these, quote these things, and I, but I forget to do it. But if, if people were wondering, just type in government dot or dot, uh, what, what is it? Government dot, um, G, uh, what's the government dot, whatever, .gov. GA dot gov. Yeah. What is it? Is it dot gov? <laughs> GA dot Georgia. Anyway, um, just type in like dot gov equity program. Like you can Google that and you'll find all these things. Like I, of the things that I looked up, what I decided, which was a very long aside, was a small fraction of, of what I found. So this is everywhere right now, guys. And so that this is this is really, really serious shit. It's here and and it again leads to serfdom. Sorry. Okay, I'm done there. No, no. I mean you're you're hundred percent true. And also, you know, these payments like the five hundred dollar payments. I wonder if they come with like a big sweepstakes check like for the first <laughs> one or so. I'm just picturing that. Top hat, <laughs> you have it off of your house. It's like Uncle Sam or something like that. And yeah. but but I mean you talk about the 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 democracy part of it i mean you're paying people to get hooked on this stuff if they don't vote in the right people they get pulled off the stuff <laughs> they get pulled off the stuff <laughs> and um you're you're effectively buying votes with their own money and have 100%. them contribute yeah. to the democratic process to put in your planning more permanently to institutionalize yeah. that planning so this is like this 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 disgusting web of corruption that builds itself into the system and allows for these people to never leave office effectively. And like, even we said, you know, at the beginning, um, you know, well, the last chapter we talked about, you know, that if you throw democracy in front of something, it doesn't make it democratic. It just makes it democratic for that snapshot in time until they get in. And it's like, all right, well, maybe the next time we get voted out, we got to put in some conditions here to make sure that our progress isn't stunted or reversed. And then we talk about like these backdoor deals, like I believe they're referred to, well, we got to make an agreement with the conservative party that they're not going to reverse these things. And that is how you get into this left, right argument about dumb stuff in the public while they're both in the back room uh, agreeing with each other making these deals while everyone else argues and thinks they're disagreeing with each other i think is how you go down that route is this this web of corruption that is uh you know they're 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 going toward the planning i mean obviously the democratic party in america wholesale into the planning but i don't even think the republicans necessarily are against it as well i mean if you talk about their spending policies and stuff like this there's plenty of good no. conservatives in there fighting against it but but not enough i don't think there's enough people of fighting and that's that's just in america i mean you talk about the uk and a lot of these other places that are too far gone um you know it's it's disheartening seeing how far off the road to to liberalism the road, the road to liberty the road to freedom uh, that we're going and going down again the road to servitude and, and uh, um you know it's just uh, disheartening when you see that yeah fiscal conservatism from a policy standpoint is an oxymoron you know and and I don't care if that pisses off, you know, conservatives, um, but they need to understand that. I, I think that there is definitely a symmetry, not an asymmetry, but a symmetry in the amount of Democrats who think they're advocating for X, but are actually advocating for something entirely different. Like they, they don't understand what the leaders of their side are actually about. I think there's a symmetry between that on the left and the right, the, the, the conservative, mm -hmm base does not understand what the people at there um who are leading them supposedly uh are about uh, you know uh, again yeah. don't care if that pisses people off it's just accurate yeah no i'm as the again registered card carrying conservative here uh I, I totally agree with you and it's extraordinarily unfortunate but anyways uh all sunshine and rainbows from here on out guys uh, so we'll yes, dive back fantastic. into the book
dive back into the book. So this is where he gets oh, into, um, I think it's uh, Willy Wonka and the something factory. Um, yeah. But I, this is where he gets into what we kind of hinted at before about predicting other people's reactions mm. or behavior correctly. If you have a correct rule of law that isn't arbitrary, this yep. is extremely important. And I do like how he teases this out. So uh, quote, it may even be said that for the rule of law to be effective, it is more important that there should be a rule applied always without exceptions that what that what this rule is. Often the content of the rule is indeed of minor importance, provided the same rule is universally enforced. Big importance. Equally. Universally equally enforced. To revert to a formal example, a former example, uh, it does not matter whether we all drive on the left or the right-hand side of the road, so as long as we all drive on the same side of the road, right? The important thing is that the rule enables us to predict other people's behavior correctly, and this requires that it should apply to all cases, even in a particular instance where we feel it to be unjust. So, you know, as he talked about here, when a rule is applied arbitrarily, it causes dysfunction within the society. Also, although we, as we've stated before, that dysfunction is often intentional, unfortunately. Yep. But, yep. you know, when you, when you, I mean, this dysfunction, dysfunction is like, you know, we all drive in America, the right side of the road. Um, unless it's like after midnight, <clears throat> then you can kind of do either side, but, but really that's a good example. Like, okay. What if uh, someone said you can drive on the other side of the road momentarily, like what kind of dysfunction you know, outside of a, an officer with the lights on, what kind of dysfunction would that create? That would create havoc in a society. So we need to make sure that we understand these rules before you understand the rules of the road before you get on the road. You know, we got to take a test to make sure that we understand these rules. And when you, you violate those rules, you know, that's when you get a ticket. That's when you understand, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, so, you know, it's extremely important. And I don't know if you want to take the, the um, particular instances with these rules, even when they feel unjust, they must be implemented. Um, if we want to make sure that these remain uh, not arbitrary. Yeah, I mean, the well, a few things there. I mean, there's an example. I'm trying to remember what book this was. This might have been a Malcolm Gladwell book, but when he talks about, um, I, I, I can't remember the book, but one of them they refer to whenever there was some country that actually changed the side of the road that you were supposed to drive on um, from either the left to the right or the right to the left. And Whenever that happened, you would have thought that the traffic accidents went up. But what happened is they went down because people were being like ultra super careful and driving slower than normal because they didn't know what was going to happen. Right. And so th the point is, is that if you are not sure what other people are going to do, you're going to be more careful and it's going to slow down society. It's going to slow down um, everything that's taking place. Um, and Hayek's point here is that uh, the important thing is that the rule enables us to predict other people's behavior correctly. Um, and this requires that it should apply to all cases, even if in a particular instance, we feel it to be unjust. Unjust. I think this is actually an important distinction um, or not important distinction, important point to make here, which is there will be times that under the rule of law, something happens that you think is unjust. Have we had anything like that happen in the last week? Bill Cosby, right? Mm -hmm. So, there are going to be exceptions where you go, okay, that's messed up. That's messed up, right? In that case, a guy that we all agree, I think unless you're crazy, uh, a rapist is walking free. Um, but if you had to err on the side, uh, is this a John Stuart Mill? I'm trying to remember who said, like, would you rather have 10 
or have one guilty person walk free for every nine innocent people or every nine guilty that, that go to jail? Or would you rather have innocent people go to jail for every guilty person that walks free? Um, and the idea is you would much rather have a guilty person go free than innocent people go to jail um, because you have to have this presumption of innocence. You have to have this system. And by the way, if you're guilty, you're probably going to do more shit that's going to put you back behind bars. That's what recidivism is. Um, you know, if we look at guilty, being guilty and coming back and coming back, come back. Anyway, the point is, is that you, you have to err on that side. You have to err on the side of freedom. You have to err on the side of the benefit of the doubt. I think Jordan Peterson makes an excellent observation when he says, how the hell did society even land on presumption of innocence? Like that is a crazy thing for us to agree on, which it was actually, I think it was in the, the Code of Hammurabi, which goes back, that's like ancient Mesopotamians maybe, um, where it was if someone was shown to be making a false accusation it's like, no, you're actually going to die instead of the person you're accusing. So this is a concept that isn't uh, as recent as we think it is. But the point is, is that it's rare. Um, and you have to have that uh, in a society that, in order to function. And again, it includes time. So just like equal opportunity will create inequality of, of income or inequality of outcomes, um, how, which, which inequality of income falls in that category. Uh, rule of law is going to create instances where we're like, this is unjust. Bill Cosby, this is unjust, right? Um, but you have to understand that those exceptions are going to exist and they're worth the alternative, which is, again, this despotism and, uh, and um, authoritarianism. And so it says a rule applied arbitrarily will cause dysfunction within a society. It's like when people randomly decide to drive, given the authority to drive on the opposite side of the road. I mean, that's, that's exactly what Hayek says here. Um, so do you want to go uh, to the part where it's about punishment, the, the different yeah. things on punishment being applied differently? Um, yeah. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. I mean, this, uh, so uh, this is there anything of, you'd add to that, to what I just said? No, although I do appreciate that, that last, the rule applied arbitrarily will cause dysfunction is actually my quote. Uh, but I'd hope. Oh, that's I yours. Okay. I was like, I don't remember writing that. <laughs> <laughs> Stuck it in there. Sorry. Very Hayekian. Though. We're very organized over here. <laughs> we are, we are. Day drinking. Anyways. Um, yeah, no, no. So I, I like the, the part and I don't know if you want me to read this footnote um, already. And I think this sure, is where you might it. be getting into the, the, the examples of Britain and stuff like that. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's important here in, in a sub note and I don't remember who it's from exactly, but uh, it's laid out concisely here that, quote, no punishment without a law expressly prescribing it. So you don't get punished for a law or you don't get punished unless you violate a law that's been expressly uh, you know, proposed beforehand. This is knowing the rules of the game, right? If there's some rule that's applied halfway through the game and you already made an action that would violate that rule, you can't be punished for that. So, you know, you, you can't you can go off base there. And it continues, no crime must remain without punishment, whether the law explicitly provides for it or not. This is a dichotomy. So he's saying it, under the rule of law, there is no punishment without a law expressly prescribing it. Under the rule of law, you're, someone's not going to get punished unless there is something that we've all agreed upon that we all understand is there ahead of time being the important part, not some just ad hoc thing, arbitrary thing, especially prescribing it. But he's saying that what this system is, what planning is, is no crime must remain without punishment, whether the law explicitly provides for it or not. So that's a very different thing as he's saying like, look, this might not be in the law, but if someone commits a crime as we determine it on the fly, then it has to be punished no matter what. And so that made me think of these uh, things in Great Britain, these hate 
or non-crime hate incidents. So if you look this up, this is honestly like I use the ter word terrifying a lot and I really try not to like overuse it. But this is actually I mean, this is really, really terrifying. Um, these non-crime hate incidences. So to date, there's been over 120,000 of these things filed. So you're like, okay, 120,000. I think in Andrew Doyle's interview with Jordan Peterson, um, he said it was like one every seven minutes or something had been filed since they first created this. Um, but what a non-crime hate incident is, is uh, defined by the their, well, their thing here on citizensadvice.org.uk. Here's another one of those links that I'll probably forget to put in there, but I will really try to remember to. Um, what are hate incidents? The police and Crown Prosecution Service have agreed on a common definition of hate incidents. They say something is a hate incident if the victim or anyone else think it was motivated by hostility or prejudice based on one of the following things, disability, race, religion, transgender identity, sexual orientation. This means that if you bold you believe something is a hate incident it should be recorded as such by the person you're reporting it to all police forces record hate incidences based on these five personal characteristics so in the united kingdom they have this database of non-crime hate incidences okay non-crime very important here all right that if someone says so it's if you or someone else around you thinks that a thing happened so Kevin and I were driving on the road and Kevin says, you know, Hey, what do you look out asshole? And someone behind Kevin hears that and says, Oh, I think he said that because that guy's Jewish, I'm not Jewish, but I think so. I, it's, it says it right there in the definition. If you think so, if you think, right. So this is literally the definition of arbitrary bullshit that someone pulls out of their ass and, and just claims it to the police, except for in this case, it's become institutionalized that they will record it and it will go in a database. What does that mean? So what that means is that this is, if someone uh, does a background check on you for employment, for example, non-crime hate instances are recorded in that and show up in a background check. So a potential employer will go, oh, well, this person was accused of bigotry, whatever, because someone thought so. And they might not get that job or people will lose their job. And you have the police. They go, they go on later in the, in the article. It's like people – police will – they take this very seriously. They will show up at your house based on a tweet, based on a Facebook post, based on some random thing that someone else said. Again, the, in that situation, Kevin could say something to someone or I could say something to someone, and they, that person does not perceive it as being injurious to them. Some random bystander can say, oh, I think that was, that was motivated by bigotry. Report to the police. Now it's on your file permanently, right? So going back to the quote that Hayek puts here and how this is incompatible with, uh, well, the, the rule of law. So in the one case, this is something that we all agree on that no one's going to get punished unless this is a violation of a law that was expressly laid out ahead of time. And the opposite is no crime, as it's defined through whatever you know vague uh, parameters, must remain without punishment, whether or not the law explicitly provides for it. That should terrify you that there is a list where you there are consequences for you for something called a non-crime hate incidents. Non-crime, not a crime, not against the law, 
but it has consequences the same as if you had violated the law. Think about it like this. And so last thing I'll say on this uh, is that, you know, if a person was a sex offender, right, their name goes in a database, which is good. I would rather they be killed. But anyway, um, their name goes in a database and there's consequences for that. That's a crime that's evil that has consequences. They show up on a list and then people will treat them, you know, whatever way, according to the fact their name show up on a list, you know, with employment or housing or you can't live so close to a playground or an elementary school or whatever. The same kind of thing is happening in the UK, or at least a similar thing, for not crimes. Not crimes. You pissed a person off. I mean, that's insane. That is insane. So when I say terrifying, I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating being hyperbolic. But this is where all of this leads. The spirit of planning and, and where it goes and how it's incompatible with the rule of law, equal um, – application of law laws that are laid out ahead of time where like you said these are the rules of the game that we all adhere to and understand and help us to predict each other's behavior how can you possibly predict another person's behavior and what's going to happen to you based on this this is like policing your own thought and policing your own words to the nth degree here it's like well i'm not going to say anything because i could end up on a fucking list because some person you know who it might be for nothing related to what i said they might just they just might not like me Right. Um, so this is the definition of arbitrary. You know, it reminds me of I post about this in my locals. Um, Jordan Peterson's interview with uh, Yanmi Park, the North Korean, um, gosh, refugee defector. I mean, vic I mean, victim, pick your term. I mean, good God, this is one of the most powerful interviews I've ever seen um, where she talks about like the oppressive nature of being there. And also she equates it to the university uh, here, ironically enough, but where she's like, you're afraid to say anything because you don't want to be punished for it. Again, even if it's in North Korea, it's against the law here in America. She talked about, she was at Columbia university um, about how there were social consequences for saying something that might go against um, the prevailing views and how it was crazy to her to be doing the same thing in America that she was doing in North Korea. But th that's where this goes. You know, this isn't hyperbole. That's a North Korean defector you know saying the exact same thing where it's like i'm policing my speech because i don't know how people are going to handle it um this is where planning and socialism this collectivist ideology leads yeah when you're going through those british examples i'm just thinking like how much of a killing uh, uh jonathan height and greg lukinoff would would get if they made a book mm -hmm. the coddling of the european mind because what you described right there is the coddling of the american mind a book they wrote this is a this yep. legalized microaggressions because mm -hmm. that's what that yeah is. that's yeah, um, I mean, that's the, the perfect term for it, I think, is because a microaggression, although it can be real, some might, might take offense to what you say, does not mean it was meant to be offended. It, it disregards intention, right? So even the examples you use for me, you know, calling some random person an a-hole, if it's a person of the wrong color, well, there's a lot of emotive that can be attributed to me, uh, and you can't have that. If you, that One, that does not correspond with the rule of law, and two, going back to the previous chapter, you can't have that in a democracy. You can't. Yep. You know, that, that eliminates a large part of this free exchange of ideas, this free enterprise system that we have here that we know that creates all this prosperity. You're living in like a prison state. I mean, it's like you have to constantly be in a state of paranoia. Um, yeah. You know, I think of like the Soviet Union where it's like you don't know what to say. Like, there's a, a movie that I love that I know you didn't love as much, but The Death of Stalin it reminds me of that because they're like – 
even with the, the Stalin dies, spoilers, Stalin dies. And um, like he, he, they're, they're That's still the afraid. They're still afraid to talk around him, like his dead body, yep. as if they're going to get shot in the back of the head if they say anything wrong about him. That's the paranoid state that they are going to create there. And I'm, I'm sure they've already created it, um, you know, in, in, in the UK and, and parts of Europe. And this, and it sounds like that's being created at none other than Columbia University, but I mean that is the state of the university campus as laid out in the coddling of the American mind. That's that's the state of a lot of like high schools now, a lot of schools, and that's going to start branching out as those kids who are getting used to that sort of of state of being state of paranoia grow up and to, to be adults. They're going to effectively terraform the culture to yep. to act just like the university, and that's not. I mean that is how. Uh, uh, any form of democracy is going to die. Uh, any form of liberalism is going to die because the unfortunate these kids don't get taught what actual, like we talked about, European style liberalism is. They get taught the Americanized uh, form of it, um, and you know that 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 is how you go down the road to serfdom. Is is you're going to create the state that's going to mimic um, effectively these dead states in Europe who who have completely gone off the road. And I don't know. You know, if there is an avenue back, and that's the problem is you you get far enough down the road, there's really nowhere to turn around. Not an easy one. No, not an easy one. Yeah, and not one that's going to come without you know, unfortunately, revolution. I know the other side likes revolution, but you know, it's yeah, yeah. it's something we you we want to avoid because uh, you know, no one wants no one wants to go the the violence route. Well, yeah, and and we already have examples of this in both the university and in our popular culture. I mean, that was the Hidden Tribes uh, study. And we have this just specifically, well, the Hidden Tribes was our population. And we have Pew Research uh, polls on university campuses where in both cases, whether it's um, at, the, at the workplace, so if you're talking about general population, workplace, church, social group, whatever, um, who is most likely, who feels over 50% feels like they can speak their mind. Well, it's the same on campus. Who who feels like they can speak their mind in, in class and on campus? Those who identify as progressive, as activists, as on as on the far left, right? Even on campus, I believe the study said even center left people, less than fifty percent, felt like they could speak their mind in class or with their peers. Um, and so, what we're talking about now, I mean, that's a precursor. Everything that happens, you're talking about politics downstream from culture. That's another way of saying law. And what's what's instantiated in law and institutionalizes downstream from culture. How did Jim Crow happen, right? You have the people who were racist um, get power back, you know, after the the Republicans leave post Reconstruction, and so then they start to inscribe their beliefs into law. Their their culture reflected it. So if we have a culture that is fear based and opposed to freedom of speech and you know, it talks, it treats things like microaggression seriously, that will eventually be inscribed in the law. That's what happened in the UK. That's these non-crime hate incidences are, um, you know, those are the types of things that will become institutionalized on a official level here in the US or things way worse. You know, the US, I think, often take, d- doesn't just take some incremental thing in another country and gradually apply here. You know, they'll, yeah. they'll end up applying something that is like 10 times worse uh, in true American fashion. Uh, whenever they do apply it, uh, but but either way, it leads like you said. It, this is despotism. This is ser- servitude, and you know that's not hyperbole. I, I really hope people don't hear us speaking hyperbole here. Um, whenever we say that, this is this is 
totally serious, very dead, dead serious. No exaggeration. It's serious, but the only way you can treat some of these serious subjects is is with comedy because it would be really too cool. depressing yeah. without it. Because I mean, if I got to go to jail for him for saying that Caitlyn Jenner is a nice dude, like <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> you know, like, that you know, guy is awesome. Like, yeah. hey, great. I mean, he was a great Olympian. Elected, there's like, where's that gray area? If you said he was a great Olympian, well, he was a he at that time and then so yeah i mean you talk about arbitrary we're talking silly right now but it's not silly to them we we go on on columbia university campus right now and say this i mean we're going to be escorted off other than we don't attend the school we're going to be escorted by security real quick because of our hate speech so uh yeah it's a terrifying is the correct word uh you're using there um yep because you know it's happening in the the place that kind of help invent this liberalism, this, this liberal tradition. And it's fallen there effectively, almost completely, uh, especially when you have rules like that um, being implemented. And uh, you know, it's, it's something that we want to avoid here at all costs and, and something we got to fight for. And part of it's reading material like this to understand how it's happened in the past. There's people, there's people in the UK who looked at Germany and it's like, wow, those darn Germans again, like what's, what's wrong with those Germans. There's nothing wrong with Germans, man. Yeah, look at the ideas. Look at the trend. Look at the directory, and and I think we're seeing. You know, I'm not saying the next Hitler is going to be rising in the UK, but I mean that culture is going to effectively kill itself before uh, it goes around uh, trying to take over other places. So, scary well, future. Before we move on to that next part that about that, speaking of words um, that have some contemporary context, um, in the UK. Boris Johnson is the conservative guy. He's the one that we were all really excited that beat yeah. Jeremy Corbyn. And that dude, if you look at the policies and stuff, he's, I mean, he is mirror. He, he, there are quotes that he has. You could lay him out next to, uh, who's that asshole in Canada? Um, blackface yeah. guy loves yeah. blackface. Yeah, yeah. Justin Trudeau. <laughs> there are quotes you can take from Boris Johnson and lay him next to Justin Trudeau quotes. And you wouldn't know the difference, no. um, in terms of stuff on race, on their policies on COVID. Um, so yeah, no, like, <laughs> This is happening there, even with their most conservative government in the UK. Um, and so it's like, no, no, no. Whenever we say America is the last holdout, that's not, a, again, it's not an exaggeration. It's not like, well, we're the last holdout, but there's like at least a handful of others. It's like, no. Yeah, but what, what happened the in the holdout. UK? What happened in the UK, just like we talked about in a previous chapter, they ceased to be an exporter of ideas and they became an mm. importer of ideas. Yep. And that is where, I mean, that's a huge trend that if you see, and that started happening, you know, in the forties, you know, even earlier than that, when they started to look at some of these socialist policies and, you know, seeing how they work before they saw how horrifying it was in the UK and then later in the Soviet union, but they're, they're importing. It's what I would call a dead culture. They're, they're no longer Mm. exporting these ideas. And once the U S becomes that, which we're not there yet, um, but there are certain like red flags you see that, that I normally see in the culture. I like something as simple as Netflix seeing Netflix, all these Korean movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, and they're good. Like they're, they're, they're good. They're not great. Um, like two but, of them are good, but, that's but, awesome. but what America's sitting over here doing the woke movies that no one wants to watch. And Korea is at yep. least making something that people want to watch. And now we're already seeing this import importing ideas. Although I would say very American, Americanized uh, Korean ideas. But once those ideas, and I'm not like against Korean movies or anything like that, but but it's just like a, one of those red flags. You start seeing, hey, we're importing this stuff. Why are we importing this stuff? Our, our, our mm-hmm. best export in America is culture. And once that ceases yeah. to exist, once the main import becomes Chinese culture, that becomes a problem. Yep. It, That's when, he, yeah. here's. Can I give one example of that? And let's move on yeah. to, the, to the privilege thing. Um, 
look at what happened with those protests in Taiwan, man. Beijing, Donald Trump, not, do not. Wasn't it Taiwan? Not, not Beijing. No, it's Taiwan's. Taiwan. Yeah, Donald Trump, don't trust China. CCP is asshole, yeah. you know, and they're waving American flags. You know, I mean that that was Hong you Kong. You want to talk about oh Hong Kong, not Taiwan. Yes. Yeah. Well, Taiwan's yeah. got their own problems. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but Hong China, Kong, but you're yeah, right. Hong Kong yeah, was. I mean that's that whole Twitter account. CCP is asshole. You know, and yeah. it's like, you know, okay, that's funny, whatever. But that's the culture. That's them saying they were waving American flags. You want to talk about a failure of Trump? It's like do some shit to acknowledge that that they are in Hong Kong waving American flags and saying the CCP is crack. I mean, they dude, they were cracked down on, right? Mm-hmm. Hardcore. American didn't do anything. We had our most anti-China president that we've had probably ever, and even that didn't do it. But that's the power of the American culture, and that's what Yaman Park talked about in that interview with Jordan Peterson where she's like, I thought this was a place where freedom was. You know, There's an idea, there's a notion behind what America is supposed to stand for for people who are you know so far removed from it. And it's like whenever that's gone, it's gone. I mean I've got a friend who lives in Australia, and she's talked about this, where she's like, you don't get it. You don't get it. There are people who love liberty living where I live. And where she says that, she's meaning Australia. And she's like, we're going, don't do what's going on here. You're the only thing we have to look at. And that's what Yaman Park talked about. And she's like, "What if America falls, there's nothing left. She's like, there's nowhere else for us to go to. That's it. Um, and so, yeah, it's like th- these ideas, like you said, about exporting culture, if we're not exporting these notions of freedom, of liberty, of I will not do what you tell me to do just because you say so. Like you have to make a case. Um, if, if America falls, then those ideas you know, are going to be gone too because then we're the only ones exporting that is my point based on what you said. Like the only people exporting this idea of true freedom and liberty um, is us, and, and that's it. And, and I don't know how much longer we'll hold out uh, as that exporter. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. To speak um, on a positive note, by the way, yeah, before we get right, to this next part. So. Right. I swear, <laughs> the sunshine and rainbows is coming somewhere, I swear. We're so um, happy. It's so good. <laughs> might be Things the next episode. Um, yeah, so so to continue uh, um, from the book, uh, there is this one, I mean, like he's done so many times, highlighting these terms and how they're abused. Uh, in 1944, last I checked, that's 2021. That's oh, at least pressure. 10 years later. So and, um, and and it's Minimum. amazing. It calls us out. So um, I'll just quote directly from your quote. The conflict between formal justice and formal equality before the law on one hand and the attempts to realize various ideals of, subs- of substantive justice and equality on the other hand also accounts for widespread confusion about the concept of privilege and it's sub and it's consequent abuse privilege. That's that's the word he's highlighting there. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of that term recently or how it's used. Unfamiliar. But but his argument here is back in 1944 it was being abused. And uh, again, I think his head would spin if he understood how we use it today. Uh, so to continue to quote to mention only the most important instance of this abuse, the application of the term privilege to such to property as such, it would indeed be a privilege if, for example as has sometimes been the case in the past, land property was reserved to members of the nobility. So we talk about feudalism, that like only the only people eligible for landowners are people of nobility, the lords. Rule of status. Exactly. Um, 
and continue the quote, and it is a privilege if, as is true in our time, the right to produce or sell particular things is reserved to particular people designated by authority, right? This arbitrary law that you can only, like, the, only this group can sell this, only this group uh, can purchase that. Um, Which means if only this group can sell it, what the other groups can't do, they can't sell it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, arbitrary yeah. law. Um, and to end it. But to call private property as such, to call private property privilege, which all can acquire under the same rules, under the same rules, a privilege quality, because only some succeed in acquiring it is depriving the word privilege of its meaning. End quote. <laughs> we are using privilege to define something that it, it doesn't mean. And there's a multitude of ways we do this. And I tried to break it down here as well as I could. So I say privilege today is use a term for a group of people who have more have typically more or more privileges than other groups of people. There are several problems with this. Number one, the term, even though referring to a group, is applied to the individual regardless of their particular circumstances. We think about white privilege. Doesn't matter what your your individual circumstances is as a white person. If you're a part of this group, you're privileged no matter what. You are you're poor, you have no money, you're on the street, you're sick, you're homeless, you're you're still more privileged than you know LeBron James. Right? I mean, this is how you abuse this. I know there's people like, oh, you're just using the extreme cases. Well, it's an abuse, right? It is defining a group and applying it to the individual. And that's a big thing about this planning advocacy is they don't really recognize the individual because they don't really care. Yep. They only talk, they only care about the collective because that yep. is in their defense to build people in these collectives is the only way, only way you can build social scale of values. Individuals, mm. way too difficult, way too difficult. That is way too much information in the system. You must simplify it. You must be reductive and everyone must be the same. All white people are the same. All black people are the same. Everyone is the exact same. And that is how you simplify this process to understand that those scale of values. Number two, yep. the term can, is- Can, a, can I piggyback on that really fast before you go yep, on? Yep. One, whenever you said the, the we over the I, that's one of the things that Yaman Park mentioned about North Korea is it's not I love. There is no concept of I love- a person it's we if it's not i like food it's we like food so it's all collective or individual um but the other part of that whenever it's like what you're saying there uh with the individuals um being relegated to the back seat let me find this here um oh about how privilege is, is being misapplied uh it made me think of so oprah and Meghan Markle and, you know, Prince Neutered or whatever his name was. Um, and like you said, they would say whenever they were asked, because uh, this gets into scales is my point here, is it's like, well, what if, wh how, what about someone who's really poor and has white privilege and what, or, what would you say to them? And the answer is always, well, they might experience hardship. This is in like FAQs from on websites where they address this. And it's like, well, what would you say to this person? It's like, well, despite being white privilege doesn't mean you don't experience hardship. It just means you don't experience hardship based on race. And so then the question is, if you are a non-white person who makes six figures a year and got called a racial slur one time, and you're a white person who is destitute in Appalachia or, or rural Missouri – and you've never been called a racial slur. Who's more privileged? That's what they don't they don't account for in that. Is my point is that they'll say, "Well, look, you, you know, you're white privilege, and you might still experience hardship. But you never experienced hardship on the basis of race. It's like okay, but let's still take that one step further and say, how would you even quantify these things? A person being called a slur, but then they go home, they drive their you know 
$120,000 car home. This is, of course, an exaggerated example, but drive it home to their $1.5 million home. Um, and the white person who's never heard a racial slur in their life, but you know, is making less than $20,000 a year for the last 10 years, and they can never afford to buy their own home or anything like that, or they're addicted to meth or, or a hydrocodone or something like that. Um, because they've never heard a racial slur, it's like they, they don't take the step further because what they're saying is fair enough. It's like, okay, this person might hear a racial slur. This person might not. This person might be profiled. This person might not, right? But they don't take it and they say that's the thing. That's it. That's all that determines privilege. It's like, okay, well, what about your overall quality of life, right? Your overall quality of life is completely ignored whenever they use those crazy intellectually bankrupt metrics. Um, but of course they don't, they won't go that one step further uh, anyway. But, but that, that Harry, cause I think Oprah addressed that in the interview with, with Prince Soyboy and Meghan Markle, you know, and they're all yeah. super duper rich, but they're talking about white privilege and stuff. But, well, this is a problem in combination <laughs> with planning, but uh, uh, just highlighting privilege, which is a way to democratically gain power because when you convince the oppressed classes that you are the solution, they're more likely to vote for you. But um, mm. with the hierarchy of social values also comes when you value oppression, a hierarchy of oppression. This is what we call the oppression Olympics, right? The the intersectionality that yep. this person, you know, the the transgender, biological female, black little person who's bipolar and has one leg like that. That is like make that person king because they, they want it. They, you know, they got a gold medal in the, the oppression Olympics. And if we treat it that way and we value oppression over or perceived oppression over, you know, actually what people can do, how we can bring every, how we can lift all ships. That is a natural conclusion, especially when you put in planning in those instances. Um, so to, to continue along here. Yep. Uh, so number two is the term is abused when material and social conditions differ among groups in a society absent of arbitrary law. All people operate under the same laws. Mm. Okay. So you're still privileged, even though there's nothing privileging you here. Now, there's no doubt that white privilege has existed in certain snapshots in certain contexts, right? There's no doubt that white privilege occurred when you sure. walk into an all-whites diner. Obviously, the privilege is posted right up there above the majority door. Majority privilege. Yeah. Major it's majority privilege in those instances. Yeah. yeah. But now, it can you're exist. You're talking about racist stuff, but, yeah. but exactly it, it, as part of the law. Sorry, sorry. I, I know I'm interrupting you here. The white privilege thing that has existed – I, I always try to make this point. Mm -hmm. it, if you go through that unpacking the invisible backpack, I think it's Judith Butler. Um, it, it's majority privilege. Now, your point about white privilege was instantiated in the law under Jim Crow and stuff. Yep. Like that was white privilege. I mean, that was like a, a skin color thing. That was very that, well, that, that was arbitrary to how law. Much majority privilege. If you're going to use the privilege term, yeah, it's arbitrary. Yeah. 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 It's it's most often a a, a majority privilege or whatever mm -hmm. power rule class. Right, uh, the the rule of class or the rule of stra status is is more often the, the type of arbitrary privilege mm -hmm. uh, that we encounter. So, sorry. Yeah. No, no, you're good. I'm done. Uh, and actually, this kind of talks about it a little bit too. So the third one is the term is accurately used when referring to the creation and application of arbitrary law in the past, but then that is transposed into society today as if those laws still directly applied. I think of Ta-Nehisi Coates when I think of this. Like, oh, this bad thing happened in 1960, therefore we're racist today. Bad thing happened in the you know Jim Crow South, money. therefore we're racist today. It's it's this insane application of just transposing that situation on today as if no circumstance.
circumstances, nothing has changed. We've not progressed at all. So there's no doubt that people today can benefit from those past privileges. There's no doubt that that can happen in some way. Although it's hard to say that the people of today should pay for the sins they didn't commit. I also think it's a, an important point. Not only is white privilege seen as, hey, maybe you should help black people because they're less privileged than you, but you should also uh, you should become an ally, which does not mean that your sins are forgiven. That just means that you're going to be dragged along as long as they could suck the life out of you effectively. Um, and that you must keep apologizing continuously, 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 like yeah, what Prince Soyboy you just talked about. I mean, that that is, uh, you know, that that is how you use this perceived privilege in, in some of the most disgusting ways. And then number four is uh, the proposal by many of those who advocate for social justice via planning to impose arbitrary law to fix past injustice, what we talked about, even Max Kennedy before. This attempting to fix a problem using the methods that caused the problem in the first place. That's the same thing as using using this uh, institutionalized uh, or this this system or this institution that is filled with racism. If we give them more power, they somehow get rid of it, right? Saying this person that says, hey, I'm racist, but I can help you now because I've recognized my racism. I recognize my privilege. Therefore, I can use my privilege to somehow erase your your absence of privilege as if those yep. people are like well you there's no way to get rid of that privilege so the only thing you can do is step aside be an ally it's in it's underpants gnomes dude yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. there's a step missing somewhere in there i guess we sure. have to trust trust <laughs> the process yeah um so that <laughs> the whole for the folks at home the whole conversation about privilege is just one more thing like you said it's like when did he when did hayek write this you know <laughs> mm -hmm. um quite a while ago and all of these things have been accurate. So it's like, it's not just this corruption of language, um, but it's the trajectory that these ideas go. So if we were to wrap up this chapter and try to sum it up, you know, but before we have to go here, um, you know, like, again, this through line that Hayek has here is here's all the things that we claim to value, right. That we claim to understand and value and advocate for as a society. And there's lots of people who think that they're advocating for good things, that this is a continuation of the ideas that they have supported when in actuality these are incompatible with the ideas that they claim to advocate for. So the, the point is with the rule of law, this is equality under the law. There's this guy, his name was, I believe, Martin Luther King, who said that he junior. wanted his – yeah, junior – Junior, <laughs> you named me after the dog, Dad. Uh, who, who? I'm so glad you get that. But, but anyway, but he who said, "Look, I don't want my kids to be judged by the color of their skin, only by the content of their character." And that's what equality under the law is. Is it's like whether in society or whether through the legal standards, more importantly, um, that you're judged just by the type of person you are. You're treated equally. You have equal opportunities. This might lead to disparate outcomes. Not only it might, it will. If you give people freedom to do what they want, it will lead to disparate outcomes. Um, but the alternative is to force equal outcomes through equity or whatever other thing, um, total government control. And when you do that, you don't bring people up. You bring the whole society down is what happens there. And that's not a racial thing. That's just a people thing. Um, you're not going to you're you're not going to bring people up that that don't want to go up, but you damn sure can force everyone down. And so, as he ended chapter five with, he's like, "Look, um, as long as we have equal rules of law, as long as the law limits power, um, then you can probably avoid a lot of these conflicts that planning has with democracy." And then in this chapter, he's laying out, "Look, here's how they can use the rule of law 
to subvert democracy, to subvert the will of the people, subvert freedom, um, and basically vote in coercion and vote in despotism. Uh, uh, anyway, Kevin, is there anything else? I mean, I mean, what else? How would we summarize? You know, and and, and I mean, conclude this here. Yeah. So the. the it would have been ideal if we could have probably done chapter five and six together just because they were, they're so compatible with each other, but we did two hours on each of them. So that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the planning and democracy explains why this planning idea does not run with democracy and the planning yep. and the rule of law dives deeper into that because you cannot have democracy without the rule of law. You, you will go down the road of servitude when you start building these arbitrary laws that are only effect to only able to affect uh, certain people at certain times and also giving the power to the federal government or you know any centralized power to change the rules of the game while you're playing the game. We can't live in a society like that. It's not possible yeah. to live in that democracy with this this kind of planning and all planning leads to this kind of planning. So I, I love these last two chapters together just because it really gives you that full, view uh, of understanding because the, the first few built what democracy and planning is did a little bit with economics and these really dive into why are these not compatible with each other yep. so uh, it, i mean if anyone's watching this listen to all the episodes i think this is episode five um but like listen especially the last one right before this one because they, they just come together so nicely yep i don't have anything to add there um i think it's a good place to end it uh, sure. if Hey, if you guys are still here and you're still listening, please uh, check out the other episodes. Please check out Kevin, all of his content, engineering politics. I didn't introduce you at the beginning of the episode like I should have or myself. I mean, <laughs> whatever. But uh, yeah, they, if you're watching this, you probably know. Um, so either way, but check him out, engineering politics at, at, on locals and engineeringpolitics.locals.com. Um, on Twitter, ENG underscore politics, uh, ThinkSpot, engineering politics on and YouTube, of course, all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I left any out that I have on any of those. Things. I write a bit on medium, but, uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll try to use some, some different sources for that, but, uh, yeah, but treating me well, uh, find cool. Truman at return to reason .com, big growing locals community. I know you have some conversations, so there's some big creators. So really exciting to see that coming up. Uh, you're also on Twitter at my mundane mind. You go on YouTube to search return to reason. Think about research, return to reason, medium search, return to reason. Did I miss anything there? No, although I will say whenever I was typing in Return to Reason on YouTube the other day, someone else had just created a Return to Reason YouTube account, and I was like, you bastard. Like, So I'm the person that looks like me in my profile picture. On, so I on just listened, listened to something that said, uh, someone already had the little dicky, uh, the little dicky um, uh, on monster.com, <laughs> little dicky dash two. <laughs> like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a little yeah. dicky too. <laughs> I'm returned to reason one. All right, yeah, not two. Yeah. Uh, that guy's two. Uh, go anyway, all right. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate you. <laughs> anyway, all right. Thank you for watching. This is, I, we appreciate your support, and we will uh, catch you next time. Peace. See ya.